All right, so tonight is actually a pretty big deal. Yeah. The 500th anniversary. I don't know if I've ever celebrated the 500th anniversary of anything ever. Um, I remember being little. I remember 1976. You guys weren't born then. I was 12, and I remember you know, celebrating the bicentennial. Remember going to Baltimore Harbor? They had the bicentennial birthday cake, an entire barge in the inner harbor that was a birthday cake. I remember that. That was 200 years. I don't know what you do for the 500th anniversary, but what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the Reformation um, because the Reformation was a really big deal. Now, you could overstate this. Um, it wouldn't be fair to say that the Roman Catholic Church was barren of any grace or any um, of God at all. Um, and it would also be untrue to say that the Reformers were like people that you should put up on a pedestal and revere in every sort of way. They were sinful, uh, flawed people, as well as being people of their time. Yet, this was a remarkable thing that happened. A remarkable thing. And it's, it's hard to understand how very different the world was, particularly around the issue of how do you get access to God. Now, we live in a world where people almost assume that God wants to have a relationship with us and that if we're just kind of nice people, we have a relationship. If you've grown up in the South, you know, we basically believe in what we call justification by death, which means that all you got to do to go to heaven is die. And if you go to funerals in the South, that's what you'll hear. Um, that's not the way people understood God and a relationship with God in the medieval period. And so for you to understand what a big deal the Reformation was, I want to help you understand a little bit about the context. Um, sometimes it's spoken of as just like a political revolution. It was that. It was a revolution in ideas. It was a revolution in doctrine. What does Christian, uh, what is Christianity, right? It was about all kinds of things. But um, it was bigger it was bigger than just correcting some bad ideas about God. As a matter of fact, I, I think you could say, well, there's a guy, Peter Matheson. I, I really like his book called The Imaginative World of the Reformation. Now, he's an expert in the popular culture of the early Reformation period. And so he's made quite a study of all the popular culture forms like songs, like um, ballads, plays, um, woodcutting, art, all these sorts of things. And as he looks at the revolution that was the Reformation, talks about before and after, he says this, it's possible to view the Reformation, to revisit it, seeing it as less as a doctrinal shift or structural upheaval, though it was both of these, than as an event in the imagination. He says it was a shift in the basic paradigms through which people perceived their world. And then he says this, when your metaphors change, your world changes with them. And what happens is when people actually begin to read the Bible for what it actually said, when they hear the Bible taught in their own language, it's a revolution. It's a revolution. Um, what you, you think about what it was like to worship in a medieval Catholic context. Uh, you, if you were a parishioner, you would 
go to the church, the priest would generally have his back to you, mumbling in Latin that he probably didn't even understand. And then something would happen up there, usually in this area that's kind of like fenced off. Uh, Do you know that we get the phrase hocus pocus from what was happening in the medieval mass? When the priest would try to pronounce the words hoc est corpus, which means this is my body, which is part of the communion service, he didn't understand what he was saying. Most of the priests didn't even understand Latin, and the people certainly didn't understand. But they thought something magical happened up there, because all they knew is they weren't allowed to take the bread and the wine. It was too holy for them. The idea that you're a peon and that those people up there are closer to God was built into everything. And when things began to change, they changed rapidly and in some cases, violently. Now, the five solas that we're going to talk tonight, talk about tonight, um, they actually weren't articulated just like that, as these five solas, until the 20th century. But they are a good summary, so I'm going to get into that. But it, as, as we set the stage, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of access to God. Something that a lot of you, if you've, been, if you've grown up in a church, you might take for granted. You know, people tell you, well, this is how you can have access to God, through Jesus. That wasn't uh, an assumed kind of thing for a lot of people in the medieval world. The big question that the Reformation is about is... Where is God to be found? And the medieval answer was through what you see. But at the dawn of the Reformation, things shift from what you see to what you hear. Now, there's a guy, William Dearness, has a great book called Reformed Theology and Visual Culture. I hope you won't be easily offended at this quote. I don't think you will because you guys are college students. Um, He says this, people began to doubt that God could be found in mere practices and images, and when that happened, often explosive, iconoclastic anger resulted. A lot of churches got stripped of artwork and whatnot, right? And the question is, why? And here's what you need to understand, is the, the artwork that was stripped were not like people from some other town. They were the people who had been worshiping in those churches. Six months later, they're ripping all the artwork out of the churches. Because they began to believe that the way that they'd been told that you access God by seeing things had been keeping them from God. Listen to this. He says there was a growing hunger that the people felt for connection with the spiritual world. A world which despite proliferating pilgrimages and devotional opportunities seemed to be receding before their very eyes. It is important to remember that often the people were clear, the people clearing images out of the spaces where they themselves had worshipped and felt they were betrayed. The transformation was quite quick from worshipping images to destroying them. The feeling of betrayal was quite intense. What made those who worshipped the images as a child turn on the image in iconoclastic rage as an adult? The issue goes to the heart of people's search for salvation and the elements they believe mediated this search. The issue for them, which the reformers would address, was the following. Where is God to be found? 
Is God truly accessible through these medieval practices? Uncertainty about these questions would strike terror in the heart of those who were finding no satisfaction in their common rituals. Now, I love this. Something of the depth of feelings these things aroused is shown in a play written by the Swiss Protestant Nicholas Manuel. Um, I don't know German, but I think it's Dear Tottenfresser. In 1532, in one scene, the characters reflect on the indulgence market. Do you know what an indulgence was? An indulgence was something you could buy that would either get you or your loved ones time out of purgatory. Purgatory is not hell in the Catholic understanding. It's a place where your sins are burned out of you so that you're ready to go to heaven. Nobody except saints can go straight to heaven when they die. But the saints actually have extra righteousness that the Pope can dispense to people. And he can, you can get some of that by buying the indulgence, okay? And that was a big, like, relationship with God was very transactional. I would argue that in, for a lot of people who've grown up in evangelical churches, it's that way too. We've just changed the kinds of things you're supposed to do. But if you do certain things, you're supposed to expect a predictable result. It happens a lot. Anyway, um, in one scene, the characters reflect on the indulgence market. One person must have spoken for many when he recounted his experience of being placed under a ban for insulting the Pope. In mortal fear, he and his wife took their precious egg money and rushed to Bern, that's in Switzerland, to buy an indulgence. When they returned home exhausted and hungry, they fell on their knees and worshipped the indulgence. I believed I had seen the very God himself, he confessed. But later, after he understood that this was worthless and realized the depths of his deception, he became enraged and took the letter of indulgence and, quote, wiped my ass with it. I love that. Germans have always been, you know, strong in their wording. He says, I'm still sick to my stomach about it, he said to his friends. That's in 1532. So that's what, like 15, 16 years after Martin Luther nails these 95 theses. People were fired up about this stuff. This was not calm, cool, collected debate because these things really mattered. The church was holding people in bondage and in fear because people didn't really know how they could access God. They didn't understand the Bible. They didn't understand the gospel in so many ways. So as the reformers began to, to push at some of this stuff, there, there's five areas that really kind of summarize what they were concerned about. And that's what we're going to go through tonight. The first is this, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And it's good to start with that one because at the heart of all these debates about what is faith, how can you be reconciled to God, often the issue that the real debate was about was about authority. Because the Catholic Church believed that tradition and what the church said was equal with the Bible, though practically it was greater than the Bible. Because if the church tradition is equal to the Bible and the church tradition is authoritative, the church tradition is seen as the true interpretation of the Bible. And what you need to understand is for you know, many, many, many years, many centuries, the way the church taught people to read the Bible and understand the Bible was allegorical. Not reading it for what it actually said. That was seen as unspiritual. It is interesting that people like Martin Luther and John Calvin were trained as lawyers. 
you also have the Renaissance, right? The, re the, um, the Renaissance was a time of going back to the sources. People began to actually study Greek and Hebrew. They began to read the Bible for what it actually said. The Catholic Church taught that the only translation of the Bible that was the official Bible was a Latin translation, okay? And that translation wasn't very good in a lot of places and actually distorted some understandings of things. But people like Luther and Calvin, trained as lawyers, actually look at a text for what it actually says, rather than what kind of allegorical points you can draw out of it. And they began to realize some of this stuff that the church is teaching isn't true. Now, when Martin Luther nails these 95 theses, he's not fully Protestant yet, okay? As a matter of fact, uh, it's been well said that the Reformation might have begun in 1517, but it really took root in 1522. Do you know what happened in 1522? The first hymnal in Wittenberg was published. And that's when the, the, these truths begin to get into people's hearts and begin to get rooted. It also took a little while before the Bible was translated into German, which Martin Luther also did, so that people could begin to hear God's word for themselves, read it for themselves, right? So sola, sola scriptura means the Bible, God's word, is the only rule for faith and practice. That means it's the only rule, it's the absolute authority for what we're to believe for faith and how we're to live. And the, the issue is always important, and we've talked about this in our study of Galatians, because Paul talks a lot about that in the letter to the Galatians, which we've been studying this semester. The issue of authority is always an important one. How do you know what you know? How do you know what you know? Can the Bible tell you no? Can the Bible tell you no? How do we know what we know? Historic Protestantism believes that Scripture is God's trustworthy, inerrant, infallible word. Every word God breathes. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 is a, is a scripture that's helpful to see what the Bible says about this. The Apostle Paul says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man of God, and that includes ladies too, um, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture is what we look for. And as Martin Luther and, and other reformers began to say to the church, I think that what you're teaching is not true, so often they'd have debates about, well, you know, how do you know it's not true? You know, we've got, you know, Thomas Aquinas who said this, and Anselm said this, and those guys are all fine, and Luther and Calvin had read those guys and quoted those guys a lot, but they said when it ultimately gets down to is, what does the Bible say? Now, sometimes um, people have understood sola scriptura to be solo scriptura, and that's not true. Um, Protestants, and I would say biblical Christianity, does not teach that all you need is the Bible, that you by yourself with the Bible is all you need. A lot of people, I think, say that that's what the Reformation did, is it threw off church authority, and now every person could read the Bible on their own without any help from anybody. And the, the Protestants never believed that. They believed that you should read the Bible in light of the Christian community, not just now, but even of the centuries, right? 
And if you come up with some interpretation that no one's ever heard before, well, you might be right, but that should be a red flag. You know, if you think you're the first person that kind of figured something out, you should probably go read it again and consult some more people, right? I I know like in seminary, you know, when you first start learning Greek and you're like, whoa, you know, I see something here that nobody else has figured out. And then you take like the second semester and you realize that, no, you didn't know what you were talking about. Um, and, And so, you know, you really should, you know, read the Bible in light of tradition. But the scripture is the ultimate authority. Calvin and Luther and the other reformers wanted to purify the church by letting Scripture regain its proper place as the ultimate authority. And that meant people needed to hear it. That meant people actually needed to preach sermons and explain what the Scriptures taught. And they needed to go systematically through the Bible, verse by verse by verse. And that was a radical idea. A radical idea that you would actually read the Bible in its context, like from the beginning of a book to the end of a book. People didn't do that. They just sort of jumped around all over the place to prove whatever point they wanted to make. You know, there's a famous story about John Calvin. A lot of people think that he ruled Geneva with an iron fist. That's not true. He actually um, wasn't even a member, a citizen of Geneva until about five years before he died, right? And um, he was an exile, a refugee in Geneva. And at one point, he got kicked out of Geneva because he was trying to get people to live the, the way that he felt holy living should look like. And the people said, no, we don't want this. We kicked him out. So eventually, after a few years, the city fathers say, no, we were wrong. Will you please come back? And he gives them some conditions, one of which is we've got to start trying to sing because our prayers are so cold and lifeless. Like, let's try and sing. People hadn't been singing for a thousand years either. I don't know if you know that, but the, you know, the, all through the medieval period, people sat and listened to choirs of priests sing. They didn't join in. Again, worship was spectator worship, and um, that's not a good thing, and we're kind of heading back to that in some cases today, where people just kind of sit and listen instead of being involved. The reformers thought that was not a good idea at all. Well, anyway, so Calvin, after being gone for years, gets called back, and here's what he does. He, he steps up into the pulpit at the cathedral there in Geneva, and he doesn't, he doesn't mention the fact that he's been kicked out, and what's happened he simply says, now when we were last together, we were at, you know, chapter 3, verse 5. So today, we'll pick up with chapter 3, verse 6. And then he just continues right on. He's very committed to that principle. That the best way to read the Bible is in its context. So that's sola scriptura. The scripture alone is our absolute authority. Sola fide is next. Faith alone. The heart of this cry, and it is really proper to see these these solos as cries, rallying cries, slogans, if you will. The heart of this cry is that we never lose the bedrock truth that justification, and I know that's kind of a fancy biblical kind of Christianese word. It means being beautiful in God's sight. Justification is by faith alone. This is a famous statement of Martin Luther's. He says, when the article of justification has fallen, everything has fallen. This is the chief article from which all other doctrines have flowed. It alone alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church of God cannot exist for one hour. It is the master and prince, the lord, the ruler, and the judge over all kinds of doctrines. 
Martin Luther understood that how can you be beautiful in God's sight really drives everything. You can't talk about prayer. You can't talk about loving your neighbor. You can't talk about sharing your faith rightly unless you understand how are you right with God. There's a great verse in Hebrews chapter 9. It's around verse 14. This says, how much more then will the blood of Christ cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? The writer of Hebrews says, unless your conscience is clean because of the blood of Christ, you can't serve God. You'll always be trying to make sure God loves you by what you do. The only thing that sets you free to actually serve God for God and not so that you can try to make sure he's on your side is to know that you're beautiful in his sight. And the only way to know that that is settled is if you've trusted in Christ alone through faith. So that his beautiful life is what you get credit for. That's faith alone. I love Calvin's definition. It's a beautiful expression of biblical truth. He says, faith is a firm and certain knowledge of God's benevolence towards us. Found upon the truth of the freely given promise in Christ. Both revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit. If you ask John Calvin, why are you a Christian? He would have said, because God has taken the good evidences and has made them convincing to me by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's taken my suspicion of God and he's melted my heart so that I see his beauty and I see his kindness to me. Again, the book of Hebrews says that if you would come to God, you must Believe that he is just and he rewards those who seek him. And, and ultimately, faith alone requires that you understand that God loves sinners. As Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's important to understand faith is not the work we do that changes God's mind about us. It's not the thing we do that qualifies us to receive grace. In fact, faith itself is a gift of God. And Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Listen to this. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, in English, when you say that you're saved by faith, that can mean through or because of, right? Our word by has two, two meanings. In Greek, there are two different words. And there is never a place in the New Testament that says that you're saved because of your faith. Never. Everywhere, the Greek word is the word for through. You're not saved because of your faith. Like, it's the thing that makes you better than other people. Actually, faith is the empty hand that receives the gift of God. Knowing you're saved through faith rather than because of the quality of your faith. Knowing you're saved by the object of your faith, Christ himself, rather than the strength of your faith, brings true freedom. True freedom. And Martin Luther <laughs> had a great way of saying it. I love this quote. 
When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit, devil, I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Martin Luther said, if you understand justification by faith, that you're made beautiful because you're connected to what Christ did, then you can say to the devil, devil, you don't know the half of it. You tell me that I'm a miserable, you know, unbelieving, weak-willed sinner. It's true. It's true. But go take it up with Jesus. He died in my place. That's freedom. That's freedom. Charles Spurgeon said it, said it well. And he's a little later, you know, 19th century, but still within the same uh, theological trajectory. He says, the believer knows that his faith is not a weed indigenous to the soil of his heart, but a rare plant, an exotic, which has been planted there by divine wisdom. And he knows that if the Lord does not nourish it, his faith will die like a withered flower. He knows that his faith is a perpetual miracle, for it is begotten, sustained, and preserved by a power not less mighty than that which raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. That's confidence, and that's freedom. And the question is, do we use it? Do we use this truth that we can be beautiful in God's sight? Uh, Richard Loveless, I, I don't know if you've ever heard of Richard Loveless, but you may have heard of one of his students named Tim Keller. Um, Richard Loveless was a professor in a seminary up in Massachusetts, Gordon-Conwell. And he said this, only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating believing and using the justifying work of Christ in their lives. See if you resonate with this. Many have so light an apprehension of God's holiness and the extent and guilt of their sin that they consciously see little need for justification. Although below the surface of their lives, they're deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. Many others have a theoretical commitment to this doctrine, but in their day-to-day -day existence, they rely on their sanctification for justification. In other words, they, they basically are trying to become, I guess, satisfied that they're growing in Christ as a way to make sure that they know God loves them. They're drawing their assurance of acceptance with God from their sincerity, their past experience of conversion, their recent religious performance, or the relative infrequency of their conscious willful disobedience. In order for a pure and lasting work of spiritual renewal to take place within the church, multitudes within it must be led to build their lives on this foundation, this thorough understanding of justification. This means that they must be conducted into the light of a full conscious awareness of God's holiness, the depth of their sin, and the sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ for their acceptance with God. Not just at the outset of their Christian lives, but every succeeding day. Justification through faith alone. Then solo gratia, grace alone. And what the reformers were seeking to protect with this cry was that it was God's grace rather than our own merit 
that brings this relationship with God. Ephesians 2, right? We could use the same passage. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. If your understanding of how you can have a relationship with God gives you something to boast about, then you don't get it. Now, there are people that fear that if you teach people that God's grace is all you need, well, it'll make them lazy. What's to keep them from just taking advantage of that and just living however the hell they want? Right? Maybe you've heard that. Well, Charles Spurgeon said it well. If you think that way, if you're afraid of that even, it betrays the fact that you really believe the reason people live holy lives is because they're afraid. And that if their fear gets dealt with, then they have no more reason to live for God. And that's what a lot of people, I think, ultimately are really trusting in. I love this quote by Spurgeon. He says, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Man, I'll never forget, you know, just being such a frustrating kid to my parents. They tried everything. Um, Grounding me, you know, and that was when, you know, grounding meant like you were home and you couldn't talk to anybody and you couldn't go anywhere and you couldn't do anything. Um, But it wouldn't work. And I remember once, I think I was probably ninth grade or so, I remember, you know, just sitting there kind of hard-hearted. Once again, I'd gotten in trouble for something or done something. And I'll never forget my dad kneeling down and just beginning to weep and saying, kid, I just don't know what to do. That's what it was. That's what did it. Right? To see my dad, like, weeping. Like, it changed everything. And that's what Spurgeon's saying. Like, do you understand who God is and what he's done? Like, you may think that you or maybe your friends, like, you're not living the way you think you should live or know you should live, and you may think you need somebody to give you a good kick in the butt. Sometimes I get students that come to me and want me to do that. And often what I want to say to them is, do you really understand who your father is? Do you really understand who your father is? (laughs) I love that. When I thought God was hard and unreasonable, I found it easy to sin. (coughs) Next one. Solo Christo. Um, So you remember I mentioned Peter Matheson. He talked about your metaphors change. In all of the, the popular culture forms, before the Reformation, there's one dominant metaphor, one dominant image that one way that people understood, if you ask them, who is Jesus? Do you know what they would say? He's the judge of all the earth who is coming again to judge the living and the dead. Now, we believe that, right? It's part of the Apostles' Creed. We just sang a version of the Apostles' Creed. But if that's the only thing you think about when you think about Jesus, that's a real distortion. And that's what Matheson means when he says, when your metaphors change, your world changes. 
When you understand that Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, not you wait, you've got it coming, and one day I'm going to come and give it to you. It changes everything. Luther once said the Christian faith is a matter of personal pronouns. You know what he meant by that? He said it's not the same thing to say Jesus died as it is to say Jesus died for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus loves me. It's one thing to say Jesus died, Jesus loved, God is good, God is holy, God is good for me. Right? God loves me. It's the heart of the gospel. Now, Luther was lecturing actually in the book of Hebrews when he posted those 95 theses. I know later that, that Romans 1.17 was really important to him. He's not actually there yet when he nails the 95 theses. When he nails the 95 theses, he's in the book of Hebrews. He's a seminary professor lecturing on the Psalms and Hebrews, Old Testament, New Testament. And it's pretty interesting that the, Psalm, that the Hebrews is where he was when he begins to just deal with this indulgence thing and think how it's distorted things. Because one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews is that we have access to God through Christ. The, the way it says it in chapter 4, verses 14, 15, listen to this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then look, this is the application that the writer of Hebrews draws from that. Verse 16. Let us, therefore, come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And Luther's reading that, and he's looking at the church, and he's saying, there's no boldly coming to the throne of grace. There's people cowering in fear, hoping that they can have enough of their precious egg money to get an indulgence so that God maybe doesn't put them for an eternity in purgatory. But what is going on here is so different than what Luther's experiencing. He'd went to Rome. He'd done all the stuff people told him you need to do. And do you know, if you go to Rome now, there are still people crawling on their knees on those stairs so that God will love them. It's still going on right now. And Luther tried doing all that stuff, and it said it's so far removed from what the book of Hebrews promises that we can come boldly before the throne of grace because we have a high priest Sola Deo Gloria, the last one, to God's glory alone. I think you could say, sometimes people ask me, RUF, Reformed University Fellowship, what does it mean to be reformed? Here's the shortest answer I can give you. It means trying to be consistent with what the Bible says in Jonah 1.9, salvation is of the Lord. Be consistent with that from beginning to end. In all your understanding of who God is and how he works, salvation is of the Lord. Solo Deo Gloria means that God deserves all the glory for salvation, but it also gets to another vital rediscovery of the Reformers, which is this. The Bible does not teach 
a sacred-secular dichotomy. What, what was the world of the, of the medieval world was there are people who are closer to God because of what they do, namely priests and nuns. And then you've got other people who are doing things that I guess have to be done, but they're not really serving God. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach there are some callings that are spiritual and some that are not. But that idea, even though the Reformers rediscovered this, it's still in evangelicalism seems to be, uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if people understand it like they should. I, I th still think that so many people believe the number one reason to work is so that you can be a missionary at work. And the number two reason to work is to make money so that you can support missionaries who have more faith in you because they're going to like go overseas somewhere. It's true. This is, this, I think a lot of people believe this, but it's not true at all. Listen to the way Martin Luther says it. He says that it's a pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are to be called the spiritual estate and princes, lords, artisans, and farmers the temporal. That's his way of saying sacred, secular. That is indeed a fine bit of lying and hypocrisy. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. There is really no difference between laymen and priests, princes and bishops, spirituals and temporals, as they call them, except that of office and work. We have different work that we're called to. A cobbler, a smith, a farmer, each has the work and office of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. And everyone, by means of his own work or office, must benefit and serve every other. That, in this way, many kinds of work may be done for the bodily and spiritual welfare of the community, even as all the members of the body serve one another. You've heard this maybe described as the priesthood of all believers. And it's why, if you come to a Christian school like Belmont, you should be learning about how every vocation, every area that you study is all under this canopy of God's truth. That all of these different ways are ways to serve God, to love God, and to love your neighbor. And that was a vital truth recovered. This doctrine of vocation. That everyone here is called to glorify him and to love your neighbor through your vocations. All of life is spiritual. And that's why that great heir of the Reformation, that great Lutheran, um, musician Bach always put a little SDG at the bottom of his manuscripts. Solo, Deo, Gloria. Right? That's the understanding. Martin Luther talked about how the milkmaid is just as pleasing to God as the bishop. Probably more so because he didn't think very highly of bishops. <laughs> Especially if they distorted the gospel. Now the last thing I'll say this isn't one of the five solos, but it's a very important slogan that came out of the Reformation, is Semper Reformata. This means reformed, but always in need of being reformed. And that reminds us, you know, the Reformers did not think that all of a sudden God's truth has dawned and everything's perfect now. No, they said we continually need to stay in the Word of God. We continually need God's grace to continue to help us become more consistently in line with God and his word and his ways.
we stand in constant need of God's grace. And one of my favorite Luther quotes, I got two, two last quotes for you just to give you a little flavor of Luther. This one, he writes this one near the end of his life. He says it's exceedingly difficult to get into another habit of thinking in which we clearly separate faith and works of love. For even though we are now in faith, and he goes, he means even though we now understand that the way we relate to God is not by doing a bunch of good stuff, but by faith, the heart is always ready to boast of itself before God and say, after all, I've preached so long and lived so well and done so much, surely he will take this into account. It's like even if you understand justification by faith, you still have your heart wanting to say, well, you don't have just Christ. You've also lived as a Christian pretty well, you know, better than your roommate, honestly, come on. And so the heart is always wanting to, to say that to God is what he's saying. He says, we even want to haggle with God to make him regard our life, but it cannot be done. With men, you may boast, I've done the best I could toward everyone, And if anything's lacking, I'll still try to make recompense. But when you come before God, leave all that boasting at home and remember to appeal from justice to grace. Then I love this. He says, but let anyone try this. And he will see how exceedingly hard and bitter a thing it is for a man or a woman who all their life has been mired in their work of righteousness to pull himself out of it and with all of his heart, rise up through faith in the one mediator. It's hard to believe that Christ is enough. He says, I myself have been preaching and cultivating it through reading and writing for almost 20 years. And still I feel the old clinging dirt of wanting to deal with God so that I may contribute something. So that he will have to give me his grace in exchange for my holiness. Still, I cannot get it into my head that I should surrender myself completely to sheer grace. Yet I know that this is what I should and must do. And I'm always encouraged by that because sometimes you can read Luther and be like, oh man, if only I lived back then and I was around those guys and I was caught up in all that, man, this, maybe I could really get it and I could really like, believe the gospel like I want to. And Luther's like, man, I'm, I'm still like a baby when it comes to understanding this stuff. And then one last one. Now, this uh, Luther got uh, word of a friend of his. Um, it, so I, I, I still think this is often true. Sometimes Christians beat themselves up over sins they commit after they become a Christian because they just feel like they should know better. Sometimes it's, those are the hardest things to, to really believe God can forgive. And so there's a, there was a situation like that. Luther had a friend who was a pastor, and this person had given some advice to someone who had come to them for pastoral counsel. And then later, Luther's friend felt like the advice he gave them had been bad, even sinful. And he was just beating himself up over it. Couldn't believe that he had given such bad advice. And Luther hears about it. So he decides to write him a letter. And this is the letter. He says, my faithful request and admonition is that you join our company and associate with us who are real, great, and hard-boiled sinners. You must not by any means make Christ to seem paltry and trifling to us, as though he could be our helper only when we want to be rid of imaginary, nominal, and childish sins. No, no. That would not be good for us. 
He must rather be a savior and redeemer from real, great, grievous, and damnable transgressions and iniquities. Yea, and from the very greatest and most shocking sins. To be brief, from all sins added together in a grand total. Dr. Staupitz, and that was, he was a mentor of Luther's, comforted me on a certain occasion when I was in the same hospital and suffering the same affliction as you. When I felt like I wasn't living as a Christian very well, in other words. And this is how he addressed me. He said, aha, Luther, you want to be a painted sinner. He means like a gilded sinner, somebody who looks pretty on the outside. You want to be a painted sinner and accordingly expect to have in Christ a painted Savior. You will have to get used to the belief that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. I think that that line is one of the greatest lines you could hold on to for what it means to live as a Christian. You have to get used to the fact that Christ is a real Savior and you are a real sinner. For God is neither jesting nor dealing in imaginary affairs, but he was greatly and most assuredly in earnest when he sent his own son into the world and sacrificed him for our sakes. At its very heart, the Reformation was recovery that we have to get used to belief that we have a real Savior and that we're real sinners. Let's pray together.